So God's grace and his peace are yours on this Wednesday night. And as you heard, we'll be looking at that John 1 reading. For those of you who don't know me very well, I came from really small town Montana. So coming to East Idaho was really not a big shock for me. It was for my wife, who's from western New York. And I graduated from a town called Chinook uh, in northern Montana. And so I had like 30 kids in my class. But before I graduated there, I was in a small little town called Freud. It's in one of those places in the country where they just make up town names just to fill the white spaces in the map. I mean, it is, oh, it is just farmer fields. That's really all you're in. So the total population of the town, I just had one of my students look this up. It hasn't really changed much since I was there, is 192. That's the entire town. And I went to a public school in this town, and I had eight kids in my class. That was the whole, whole class. So when I talk to our small high school here, and, you know, we've got 60, 70 students, I'm like, you haven't seen anything for small yet. Because they had a public high school of 40 students. Okay? It was tiny. And so... What was amazing about this place is when you know everybody, you wait for things, right? You, when there's a big event, whether it's a, a tournament or anything like that, and getting an invitation was a big deal because not a lot went on. And so whether it was a birthday party, I mean, I, could, I, I just remember this very clearly, right? Second grade, something like that, and you got to your desk in the morning, and there was something waiting for you. I got an invitation, you know, it's because I haven't done anything for the last three months. It's, this is exciting. And it's to, you know, your kid's birthday party or something like that, or your classmate's birthday party. And so I, I used to joke, I tell my high school students, you know, the entire class came to your birthday party. All eight of them, right? And so those invitations were a big deal. And when something happened, like a wedding, or maybe on the opposite side, a funeral, the whole community showed up right? That's what those invitations meant. It was a big deal. There's other invitations that we face in our lives, too, that are kind of interesting. They're very powerful. Sometimes they lead to great joy and sometimes to great sadness. Uh, you know, one of the weird ones, of course, when you, as you get older, is when you get things like your 10-year, 15-year, 20-year class reunion invitations. You know, how does that make you feel when you get those? Or a graduation announcement. That kid's already graduating? That's often the reaction as far as that goes, especially with family members or especially distant family members. Um, invitations to a wedding are pretty interesting sometimes because then you feel obligated. That's the other part of this. Sometimes uh, invitations are not only exciting, but they can be an irritant. Oh, great. Now I've got to go pick something out, and I hope I don't double a gift or something like that. Some people think that way. Um, sometimes for memorials or funerals, it can also lead to regret, right? Oh, I wish I would have said something, or I didn't realize this person had passed away. I feel so bad. Those sort of things also come to our minds. Uh, but Christ does the same thing. He gives us invitations. But unlike the invitations that most of us face, there's really nothing we can bring to the table. And so he's going to these disciples, and he's going to invite them to follow him. And it's pretty interesting how he does this in John. So we're going to discover all these invitations, as Pastor mentioned, during the season of Lent. So as we look at this passage in John, it does start with John the Baptist identifying who Jesus is. And if you go earlier in the passage, he uses that phrase more than once, that phrase, Lamb of God. Agnus Dei in Latin, right? The Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. And so this Lamb of God, what does he do? Well, in, in verse 35, when John says it, it just says, you know, behold the Lamb of God. Earlier, in verse 29, he says what the Lamb of God is doing. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who this Lamb of God is. And so John is identifying Jesus here with the scapegoat from the Old Testament. And so as a review for some of you, that scapegoat was during that time of the year, that one time of year, the Yom Kippur, the Day of the Atonement, where the goat was sent out into the wilderness to bear the sins of the people. The goat literally took away the sins. And so now John is identifying Christ, not just with that yearly 
event in Israel with the sins of the world being taken away. He is the scapegoat for everyone. So that's the identification. So when John says this to the disciples, and he says, look, the Lamb of God, and they've already heard who takes away the sins of the world, they're, they're thinking in their heads. They know their scriptures. We're going to see that there in a second. This is the, the Lamb who's going to take away. This is the scapegoat for all of us and for the entire world. So that's a very powerful background to think about what's going through the disciples' minds. And so after this... Uh, the Baptist is telling his disciples, and he says it twice. It's almost like, did you hear me the first time? You know, right? Pastor has said this before. Why are you still following me? John the Baptist is pointing to the Messiah as far as this goes. And this is a good message for us today, by the way. So where can we see this teaching? When John says, look, the Lamb of God, where do we find the Lamb of God? The disciples want to know where Jesus is staying. They want to find this teaching. They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And what's the invitation? Come and see. Come and see. Come and you will see. Where, where is this happening? And so we're invited all the time to see where Christ is. One of the easiest ways to find this, and that's why I brought my Bible up here. It's not just a mere prop. I'm using it. But it's also because it's where we find Christ, right? One of the first ways. Come and see the invitation. Come find Christ. Find him in his word. That's one answer that you can have is this. Every single jot and tittle in this book, behind every rock and tree, you will find Christ. All of the scriptures testify to Christ. And that's an important thing you need to realize. In our tradition, yes, we elevate the word of God as the ultimate authority in our lives, but it's not just because it's a book, it's because of who the book attests to, and it attests to Christ. So come and see. That's part of the invitation. Opening up Christ's word during this Lenten season is a powerful thing. It bears witness to the Lamb of God who redeems the world from sin, death, and the power and the devil. Now, that being said, that's actually not the only invitation in this passage. There are actually three very obvious invitations in this passage. Just a few verses later, in verse 43, Jesus finds Philip and says, follow me. We don't have a lot of background on this. It's not like we know what Philip was doing. You know, was he at work? Was he just hanging out in his house? Was he at the marketplace? Was he coming out of a synagogue? We don't know. We have no idea what Philip was doing. But Jesus finds him. And that's pretty powerful for us as well. God found us before we found him. The Apostle Paul says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. God seeks us out. Notice how Philip responds also. He's convinced that Christ fulfills the law of Moses and the prophets. And because of his great excitement, we get another invitation. Nathaniel questions Jesus' origins, right? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What does Philip say back to him? Come and see. So that invitation is now kind of spreading. It's not just from Jesus. Now it's the people that are following Jesus. They're handing out these invitations. And you can almost, it's, it, this passage is really neat because you can almost, when you read it all in a row, you can kind of feel the excitement that's being generated. It's like it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this guy tells this guy, and this guy tells this guy. And then this village hears the news, and this village hears the news. It's almost like a marketplace of ideas that are just expanding and expanding. And you can see and generate that excitement just by reading the drama of the text. This passage is also challenging, though, for me, because when I look at this and I ask myself, am I this excited about Jesus that I would just run and tell all my neighbors, right? Or find Nathaniel, oh, this guy needs to hear this. Or do I just kind of sit on it? Do I hide my light under a bushel sometimes, so to speak? Do I invite people? Am I excited to share the world, um, to share to the world the good news about Jesus? For the same reason that is beyond our understanding, our understanding, God somehow uses finite fallen human beings like me or like Philip, right, to deliver God's invitation. And so that's a pretty amazing honor, and hopefully one that doesn't become bland or unimportant in our lives. That was kind of a law point that I just, as I read this text, it was just confronted me a little bit. Do I have that first excitement? Do I have that first love day to day 
to tell people about this is the Messiah. This truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet, we don't seek after God. God finds us. And yet, as unworthy as we are, God still employs us and tells us to be his ambassadors into the world. This juxtaposition is one of the things I love about Lent because, and this is again, sounds very Lutheran. That's what Pastor Dinger will say. So this is very Lutheran because we love Lent. But that juxtaposition is something I really like. It shows our great need and inability to save ourselves, and yet the God who doesn't leave us there, who seeks us out and then empowers us to seek others out. It's a pretty amazing thing. So Christ still invites us to come and see. Every time we read the word of God, we see Christ at work. In every baptism, which is a miracle of God, we see Christ at work. It was pretty cool on Ash Wednesday when we're talking about these invitations. Come for all is made ready, as pastor said. Every time you witness a baptism, you're seeing a miracle. And it's weird to think that it's not just some ceremony that we do just for the sake of doing it. We're not doing it because it's, you know, just because the people before us did it or just because of out of obedience. We do it because of the word of God and because Christ promises and he promises to be there and the power of the Holy Spirit. Faith is being created there. Faith is being confirmed there. There's forgiveness of sins being offered in that baptism. That is a miracle. So when somebody says to me, you know, Mr. Hayes, as a teacher, do miracles still happen? I was like, yeah, I just saw one. Just saw one last week. Really? Yeah, we had, we had some baptisms at church. Those are miracles. Because God is bringing death to life. God is creating faith in people. This is not something that we can do on our own. And so you see miracles every day. And then, or I'll say, my other response to that is the next thing. We see God at work. We see Christ at work in invitation in Holy Communion. And so because he, according to his promises, he is present in Holy Communion for the forgiveness of sins. And so like on a Monday morning, Mr. Hayes, did you know that, that, that there was like this great thing that happened? And it's like, yeah, I just had communion yesterday. There was a miracle yesterday. I was forgiven. That's a miracle. And so it helps kind of change that perspective. As you know, God is still active in the world. He is still inviting to the table, to the waters of baptism, to his holy word. These invitations have not stopped. Every time we participate in that, it's Christ who comes to us in, body, in his body and his blood, and we receive the forgiveness of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it also doesn't end here. At the end of this passage in John 1, there's an amazing interaction with Nathaniel that takes place. And again, we lack a little of this information. Somehow, what Jesus says to Nathaniel gets his attention. He says, when you're under the fig tree, I saw you. We don't know what that means. What was he doing under the fig tree, where the fig tree was? It would be nice to find some details there, but we don't know them. But similar to the call of Philip, we don't have that background. All we have is Nathaniel's reaction to this. So as you see that, he says, you're under the fig tree, and I saw you there. And Nathaniel's reaction, I have it here in, in a different translation. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He was obviously impressed with us in some way. Something happened there. And then he says, Jesus answers him right here. And again, it's a different translation than what you have in your, uh, in your folders there. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In a colloquial way, to use the old, was it 1970s or Eddie songs, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's kind of what Jesus says to him right there. But that invitation also applies to us as well. But this, uh, in, 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 before I even get into that, this is also a good passage, by the way, to show Jesus' divinity. Something changes here. Because he says, you're the king of Israel. He has supernatural, he has divine knowledge. And so if some, and pastor has made this point before, you'll have some skeptics and others that say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And you say, have you read the text? Like, seriously read the text? I mean, what kind of knowledge is this? It's not like every other person says, hey, I know what you were doing at 12 p.m. This, you know, today. 
I mean, does, can you do that? Can I do that for any of you? So obviously there are implications here. So I just wanted to say that as an aside. But like the disciples, we also will see greater things than these because God's not done with us yet. We await the new heavens and the new earth in which we will reign with Christ forever. Every time we come and see and receive Christ's gifts in his word and in baptism and in holy communion, we also get hints of the life of the world to come. We are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, where every tear is wiped away, in which there is no more pain or sorrow or disease. So that invitation that's given to the disciples, when he says to the first two, when he sees to, uh, sees to Andrew, and we think it's probably John is the other one, so we think it probably is, to Andrew, and then to Philip, come follow me, or when he says to Nathaniel, you're going to see even greater things than these, that is also extended to us in that invitation. So during this season of Lent, I invite you to journey with me, the pastors, and your fellow believers at Grace as we seek to follow Christ's invitation to experience what God has in store for us. So come and see. To God alone the glory. Amen.